Hi, I'm your host, Thomas, data scientist, data engineer, and you're listening to Let's Talk AI. On this podcast, we receive experts to talk about their experience, visions, challenges, with no fear to go into technical details. If you're looking to learn more about AI and related subjects, you're at the right place, so make yourself comfortable and enjoy. If you like this episode, please give us a review on your favorite streaming platform, such as Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You can also find more content on my LinkedIn newsletter. All right. Uh, welcome. Welcome on the podcast, Gustavo Vargas. Uh, I hope all is well. Um, would you like to describe yourself, uh, who you are, in a few sentences? Uh, yeah. First of all, thank you. Thank you so much a lot uh, for letting me be here. It's a, it's a pleasure. I'm Gustavo Vargas. I'm 34 years old. I'm from Peru. I'm in Spain like, like almost all my life, 20 years, I think. Um, I'm a business engineer. Um, I am, have a master in data science and I'm finishing now my second undergrad, uh, this time in economics. I have worked in a financial EU research department. Um, then I, I changed to, uh, uh, to work on a software developer in consulting. Yeah, we were using LMP, but also, you know, all the DevOps, DevOps stuff uh, there. Mm-hmm. And now I'm uh, working as a data scientist and I take care of the full end-to-end pipeline for my project. So different needs, different paces. Uh, well, it's been yeah, <laughs> Awesome. Well, I feel like uh, I'm looking forward. I was very looking forward to this episode because uh, you have a very interesting background and you've been working in the field for a while. Um, I might have go directly for my first question. Uh, you've mentioned that uh, you've been doing research. Um, you've also been doing consulting software development and consulting technology. Could you share about the differences that you faced between these three fields? Yeah. Um, well, in my first job, you know, in research, what you need to do is to create a base technology that can mm-hmm. be used to create other products and that in turn can be used by clients. Uh, well, beforehand, you don't really know what's going on, what's going to go right or what's going to go wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to read a lot of state-of-the-art papers. And in my case, of course, I gave preference to literature that was accompanied by code, uh, even if I had to do it later. Um, thanks <laughs> to Log, I had there a mentor that yeah, gave me a lot of... Well, it teach me a lot. And that was, that was great uh, to be there. You know, we have this... We made these private papers and tried to make a product in the end. So in the world of software development in consulting, it's mostly software development, right? Uh, what I was doing was developing code for, for some product. Um, the pace is quite, was quite different uh, because mm-hmm. you, work, you work with these two-week sprints, uh, reviews. Uh, you have to develop test, deploy in pre-production, test again, merge your code mm-hmm. and deploy again in production. Well, yes. you know, the culture is focused on delivering, um, mostly preventing large-scale failures. Mm. The, the, the typical not deploy on Friday mem was, was really, really a good, good thing to, to know. Okay, um, now I'm working in technology consulting firm uh, where the focus is on the client and the product that is needed. So basis is lower good quality is required. So it's kind of different. You know, the different deadlines and different budgets creates a different work environment, mm-hmm. uh, different practices and different habits. Mm-hmm. The man- I, will, I could say that the management style matters, but it's constrained by these other limitations. Yes. And, well, you know, uh, there are differences and that matters, but, you know, I, I think for me, the deadlines matter the most. And that creates, you know, 
the, the way you are going to, to behave with your partners or your coworkers is going to be different. All right. Thanks a lot for sharing. It's not uh, every day is like we can have um, the, um, the perspective like from going to research to, to software development and consulting <laughs> company, technology. So if I'm not wrong, uh, while you were doing research, you've worked a lot with time series. Uh, could you tell me more into, uh, could you get me more into this subject? Yeah. Could you tell me more? Um, I was on a financial advisory company. So we mm -hmm. did it with time series because, you know, uh, we wanted to make products that were using uh, time series, actually, you know, financial time series. Mm -hmm. In the machine learning world, when we, when we began to, to, le to learn these kind of things, these algorithms, we began just with tabular data problem for regression or classification. And eventually, mm -hmm. you know, you jump when using neural networks to text data or images or video. But, um, well, perhaps in the, in the way, in this way, you are uh, having teach about time series. And perhaps not, perhaps just, I don't know, recommendation assistance and, and so on. Uh, in time series, we have a lot of data problems where we can assume some time dependency. Uh, that is, uh, when a single data point depends on the previous values. Yes. Uh, we can ask ourselves if there is a pattern in the series, if we can, if perhaps a model can predict the series using previous values. Mm -hmm. Perhaps, I don't know. Uh, I can predict what you, your breakfast for tomorrow uh, using the data of your breakfast in the previous days. Uh, you know, perhaps I'm gonna, there's going to be some error, but uh, with some great probability, I, I could, I could be, be certain. Uh, or for example, if a certain day is a holiday or it's a weekend, I can expect to have more people in restaurants, which is going to be a but an uh, increase in restaurant demand or electricity or transportation. You know, um, time dependency is almost <laughs> in a lot of problems that we need to, uh, in prediction. And we are not able to use a direct um, tabular, tabular data. Uh, it's not a classification or regression directly. Uh, so well, we need to approach the problem from a different um, point of view. All right, thanks. Uh, I really enjoyed also the, the way uh, of um, you capturing like the different applications of time series um, and like where we can bring value. Uh, I would like to get into like even more deeper into a time <laughs> series. Um, so what are the models uh, used uh, in machine learning and statistics regarding uh, time series? Okay. Um, well, I would separate, you know, this... At first the, first, the first group perhaps is this classical statistical models. Perhaps they don't, perhaps a statistical guy will, will not have called classical, but for me they are. And these uh, ARIMA models that you are using previous previous values to fit in a, one equation. Or if you, are mod, if you are modeling volatility, you know, this standard, these deviations, you have a Gartz model. At the end, they are just calculating parameters uh, of an equation fitting the data. Uh, and that equation uh, predicts the value for the next period. So if you keep doing this iteratively, uh, you have a predicted series. Okay, uh, that's for one series. But if you have more, uh, you have this multivariate time series, uh, also called in economics <laughs> panel data. And mm. you can, well, economics and social sciences. You can use this as an extension of the, that previous method, but uh, if you add 
this stochastic park, uh, you will have um, a vector autoregression method. Okay, then you are just adding matrices to this. To this, um, okay, uh, that's for the classical parts. Um, well, I want to point out that there are other techniques that come from digital signal processing. Most mm -hmm. of them are using the Fourier transform in order to use a frequency domain. I don't have so much visibility here, but I want to mention it. Uh, and this will sound familiar to people with a background in telecommunications or electronics. Mm. Okay, and okay, now uh, machine learning. The machine learning algorithms uh, could deal with this uh, using previous periods and predicting the next one, like in a regression problem. If you this, uh, you can you could use the previous values, you know, as a features, as new as a new features, as new columns, and try to predict the next one. And if you do this iteratively again, <laughs> you could generate, you know, um, a new series. And you could have you could have a metric for that, you know, with the similar metrics that we use uh, for a regression problem, yes. uh, the mean square error, the mean absolute error. The it's in time series. I think for machine learning, they tend to use the same metric, mean absolute percentage error, the SMAP, uh, well, and so on. Uh, in my experience, uh, what's working best for um, time series classification or regression that that is in which the series is an easy problem. It used to be a light gradient boosting method. Mm. Uh, adding, you know, uh, with a good feature engineering, <laughs> like mm. always, right? And yes. just like using pre uh, the values of the pe uh, pre previous periods, plus mm. uh, adding, you know, uh, some statistics, perhaps the mean, the maximum drawdown, which is the difference between the maximum and the minimum, it's mostly using finite. Uh, I don't know, perhaps the skew or something like that. And this could work um, uh, This could work uh, mostly in classification problems, okay? Because yes. <laughs> time series prediction is quite difficult. And yeah. if you have you have enough data. Um, if not, it's going <laughs> to... And a lot of problems don't have enough data. <laughs> um, also, perhaps it's worth, mention, it's worth mentioning that the, um, there is a dynamic type wrapping distance um, that is a distance that we use to cluster time series, and that's a most used when you have, I don't know, a portfolio and you want to make some clusters of the series. Uh, you don't use a typical distance because there's different, and you have a, this dynamic time wrapping because the, uh, it can deal with uh, different paces. You know, perhaps we are walking. We have a signal of we walking. You know, and. Mm -hmm. um, it could take into account that even when you are you are um, going faster, perhaps yes. when you are running, it's different mm -hmm. than when you are walking. Even when the signal is uh, faster, in some sense, well, it can distinguish some different some different signals. Signals. Um, okay. So the last part will be uh, neural networks. Uh, okay. Here, um, some things. It's supposed that neural networks can do this. Feature engineering for you, but in my experience, it always helps if you give some statistics, uh, namely what I said before: um, the mean, the maximum drawdown, the, I don't know, uh, the standard deviation, something like that. Uh, yeah, that's all mostly the models. <laughs> wow, thanks. Uh, this is a very, very, uh, very too much information, um, right? <laughs> No, totally not. I, I really, I wasn't looking for uh, that detailed of information, but I'm very happy that you break down 
um, the, those two parts and that you shared with you uh, what uh, what uh, within your experience worked the best, like for example, the uh, light gradient boosting model with good feature engineering. engineering. Um, so yeah, I feel like feature engineering is key in in every models that uh, that we're going to to develop. And then the and then the section on neural networks. I feel that uh, it gives a lot of uh, values. Um, like for example, if I'm a guy writing my thesis at the moment with time series, um, listening to you right now could give me some in insights and some some ways to like turn around what I'm facing uh, at the moment. So yeah, I think it's uh, it's perfect. Um, to, to go to my follow-up questions, um, so we've talked about all those models, like how they might be implemented and the metrics for the predictions, uh, which are key. What are the limits of those models based on the type of predictions, uh, we want to do? Uh, could you give us more information regarding that? Yeah, I remember. I remember in my masters uh, when I had these time series classes, my teacher told me that you know that you can you can say that uh, you can predict a series if you are looking at the series and you have some grasp of what's going to happen. Um, for this easy series, you have these classical statistical models and they work quite well. Um, you need to do some works, you know, some good feature engineering like. Uh, using a dummy for the for the holidays or the weekends or the months um, that could work and actually work for you know this electricity prediction um, or some kind of production uh, forecasting. Um, but it's just in those cases, you know, you use this Arima, Gart, Art uh, models. But when you are dealing with more chaotic series, and uh, the most classic example are financial series. Machine learning algorithms were supposed to save the day, but it's harder than, than you one, one, can, one can think. Uh, machine learning algorithms here are prone to overfit, because mostly because we don't have enough data. Um, you know, uh, for a financial series, um, you have one row per, per day. You know, this open, high, low, close data, you have four, actually four, four for points uh, every day, the, the open value, the high value, the low value, and the close, close value. And that's like 252 rows per year. And you have 20 years, you will have 5,000 rows. And for a then you have to split for a train and test data. Uh, you know, there, there's no not enough cases or scenarios to be trained with uh, that the model will, will, will be uh, trained with. So it's mostly that, you know, um, perhaps if you have, I'm thinking on the financial, perhaps if you have an hourly data or, um, I don't know, minute data, perhaps you could do something. I would say that it could be, but in financial, you want to trade, right? You, you have to, you want to uh, uh, earn money. So you also, your your strategies must be, that must have this the same the same pace. And it's quite difficult because of the commissions and, you know, every problem has its own, its own <laughs> uh, characteristics. So, well, it's, it, it's, not, it's not easy in, in any case. All right. Thanks a lot for, for sharing um, all those limits, all those models. Um, I, I have a question in mind and I would like to have your point of view on it. What are the challenges uh, we can face and some of the solutions? 
regarding time series and what you described previously? Okay, the solution I was, well, we talk that we don't, in, for some problems, we don't have enough data, right? Um, and the solution that I was working in, uh, in the research uh, I was doing was creating synthetic data that will help us using training, but also testing. Um, you have the problem that for financial time series, you don't have enough data, right? And we use these GAN architectures, these generative adversarial networks, uh, for created synthetic series. It was a good idea, uh, but with faces, you can easily see if the model is generated with good faces. Um, but with time series, it's quite different, as you cannot have this kind of evaluation. You can just uh, look at the series and see they are good or not, because series are not something that with our own eyes, it's easy to, to distinguish. And you have other problems that sometimes even the model is generating uh, the same series. The same series. Um, this is a state that is known as is known as mode collapse. Uh, you want actually for this problem to be good enough to create different ser diverse series, but uh, they, in some sense, they need to come from the same distribution as the training data, um, which is quite weird because you want diverse data, but they need to be from the previous distribution. So if you have wrong data, you won't be able to distinguish uh, from the good synthetic data. Mm. Um, so what's weird? <laughs> it was like a weird situation. Uh, we trained the, the models. Uh, for us, the ACID test uh, was trained a third classifier, usually a ResNet, you know, a classif uh, deep neural architecture with using residual connections to classify series. So we train the ResNet without the synthetic new data mm -hmm. and with the synthetic data. So in case uh, if the accuracy is better uh, with the synthetic data, we will say that we will infer that the, uh, the GAN is, uh, was creating good series. That was a really good approximation. So that was our way to, to, to work this. And you could use this synthetic data uh, for training better and generalize more and so on. But also in the test, because when you are testing a time series uh, classifier or testing this, sorry, this, this synthetic data, you could, you are actually, let's, let's say, for example, that you have a, strategy in a financial strategy to earn money. Mm -hmm. So you have some strategy that has a machine learning model, but you are testing only in the test set. Okay. But what happens if the test set, the test, set, test distribution is not the distribution that's going to happen in the future. So mm -hmm. with the GAN, you can also create uh, more different scenarios for testing. You know, in it's like having not just one test set, but multiple test sets. And uh, this could give you a better measure if uh, your strategy is going to be good or wrong. You know, in financial, in finance, you call it backtesting. Mm -hmm. And if you, anyone who want to read about this, Marcos Lopez de Brado, a, a researcher, um, talks a lot about this. And I think that could be applied to time series in general, not just financial time series, but I think it's it, it worth reading him. Okay, uh, so a lot of changes, <laughs> challenges. Um, I have not checked the literature uh, in two years, I think. 
uh, now with the rise of stable diffusion, you know this this uh, new architecture that uh, that's challenging GPT three and transformers. I would put money that the latent diffusion diffusion models architecture that is using is been using now could be used also uh, for for time series, mm. and I think that there are going to be some changes there. Um, all right. Uh, I'm not sure I'm familiar with stable stable diffusion. Uh, could you do a brief introduction, or is it? Uh... I don't have so much visibility. Uh, what can I know? What from what I can say is that it's an autoencoder at the end uh, mm-hmm. with, with some twerks and okay. a lot of more steps. You know, when you are actually training an an autoencoder, you are trying to get this um, this you have a really big uh, input layer and a really big end layer, but you are mm-hmm. trying to twerk uh, everything into a small layer in the middle that's trying to uh, get trying to get or to infer the the latent distribution, mm-hmm. you know? And it's mostly that, uh, but with a few twerks uh, from what I read. And it's been having a lot of attention because it's it's challenging. It's, it's transformers architecture, you know, this big transformer architecture that when you need a lot of uh, GPUs and so on. Mm. Um, you know, um, as I said before, it's different for time series that from generating images. Yes. But well, you know, any any advance could be great. Well, I'm saying this when <laughs> every three months is the new. There is a new architecture that's going to revolutionize the deep learning uh, AI. Uh, but well, perhaps not. I think that this could be suitable. The transformers, not so much, but this could be suitable to time series. All right. Okay. Thanks. Um, all right. I would like to to do a follow up question regarding. Uh, uh, this answer, um, could you share um, some time series, like how time series uh, time series are used today? Yeah, um, well, a lot of data has a temporal dependency, like electric production, stock market, value, prices, almost all IoT, IoT data, health signals, uh, hurt, you know, <laughs> uh, that's mostly in, in movies, right? Uh, macroeconomic data, Every one of these of these time series problems has its own uh, characteristics because the frequency of the data, for example, in, in economics, you for, in macroeconomics, you have one point of data for every quarter. Mm. So <laughs> you actually have not, not you don't have so much data, but for I don't know electric production, uh, you have a lot of data and. It's, mo- it's not so much the problem is not so much in the in the production as in the demand mm. um okay yeah uh, you know there is no general well they, they are i think they all are in trying to to they all have these time series problems but they also have different ways to approach it you know using the models that previously we talk but you know sometimes uh, it's like it's like always you you have some previous knowledge that could work and the, the programmer or the client knows and wants to use up about that. Um, also, it's really good to point out that uh, sometimes the clients don't need the exact value and you don't need to predict the, the exact value that you for your problem, but you need, for example, the probability that some value will increase or decrease some percent. Mm-hmm. For example, when you are using options, you are not trying to 
you are not trying to predict the value, you are trying to predict if uh, the price tomorrow is going to be um, 5% more than today or something like that, or three, three month, three, in three months. Mm-hmm. So this could change your regression problem into a classification problem where which is more which is easier um so i will try a, a good recommendation perhaps will be that if you can do this please do that because your accuracies are going to be higher um what more um oh, i think i think that's that all right awesome uh, thanks. I think we covered a lot uh, the time series part. Um, before before like ending the episode, I still have like uh, two kind of questions I want to ask your point of view uh, on. So the first one is: uh, You're so into economics. How do economists approach data? Yeah, it's, it's gonna be perhaps for a data scientist with a no economic background, it would be weird. Um, in economics, you are not interested so much in prediction. You are interested in causality. Well, I guess that in another, in a lot of other problems, you are interested in causality. But in economics, it's all about that. And traditionally, uh, when there were, you know, you have to think in a, an economics framework. You don't have so much data, and well, you don't have that much coding background. So traditionally, in econ, you use these data transformations. And you add some regressions to fit the data, and then make tests that co- that confirm the data distribution or the error distribution. You are interested mostly in the coefficients. For example, in a linear regression, you are interested in coefficients. In a linear or logistic regression, not in the prediction per se, if the prediction is good or not. Prediction matters, but not so much because coefficients could could give this causality. Uh, interpretation, the, the interpretability matters a lot. So, for example, if I'm trying to predict the quantities uh, of the demand, you know, of some product by, by some prices or or the other way around, I would like to know what coefficient we 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 are predicting, we, we are calculating, because that's like the like the relation, you know, between these mm. two quantities, mm. and that actually has an interpret interpretable. Um, interpretable, um, you know, sense, and in which you can say to your client, well, if you increase the price five uh, percent, your 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 revenues are going to increase that much. Or, for example, if I um, put a minimum salary, uh, how much people are going to be, and uh, how much the the unemployment will increase, something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, but in the last twenty years. Not from ec- economics, but for computer computer science. Actually, you have a new field of research named causal inference, where some techniques, um, mostly the they were using DAX, these directed cyclic graphs. If you have used Airflow, you will know what we are talking about. You know, and this is graph where one thing comes before before the other, mm. and they are mostly using these and also some techniques. Not if they are related to to DAX, but not that much uh, name I don't know difference in difference relation discontinuity and so on um, what they are mostly dealing with the question what will happen if I do something and I, and what if not that's not prediction that's dealing with with the counterfactual what, what if mm-hmm. um, in econ also you don't have experiments you have this 
kind of quasi-experiments, let's say. Uh, what if um, two regions that are similar, uh, one of them, one, what if in the, one of those regions what have, uh, they, we do something with the laws, for example, we, we impose this uh, minimum salary and not in the other. But they are really, they really alike. Mm. So we could have this causal uh, measure of what will happen if. Um, and for us as a scientist, I think it's quite great to, that uh, this, this field is developing um, because we can use it for, for our own questions. You know, for us as a scientist, it's mostly uh, what will happen if I increase the price or we change the website and we tend to do this A-B testing. Um, well, perhaps in, in a, it's not A-B testing what economics are, economists are doing, but they are, namely, in, they are these, naming these uh, randomized control trials. And they are doing, you know, in Africa, uh, let's say they give money to some people and not, the other, not others are they trying to measure this. Um, those techniques, I think we can, that are go, goes, um, goes more be, go beyond that in A-B testing, we can, we can actually cool use that. Also that if you, anyone is uh, interested in this, there are some libraries, you know, <laughs> we, with libraries are more, com we are more com comfortable, right? And there is a, this Dubai package, and mm -hmm. I think it's from Microsoft, and the EcomML, uh, anyone interested in this could check those, those packages. Awesome. Thanks. Uh, we're running kind of, uh, of, uh, of shorts in time, but, uh, uh, I don't care <laughs> because uh, I have an, a last question for you before answering the, the little questions I've prepared for you. Um, I have a last question I'm looking forward uh, to your answers. So um, you are now working with MLOps. Uh, can you explain it more and go through some steps and tools? Yeah. Um, when I was in my master, you know, uh, three or four years ago, I think, um, uh, they didn't explain me this much because, you know, um, it was the beginning, the rise of the MLOps. And people at that time, you know, you, you haven't heard about that engineering roles. <laughs> uh, like, it's, three, it's four years, but, you know, it seems like a long time ago because mm -hmm. the field that has um, changed a lot. Mm -hmm. Okay, in my research job, uh, my first job, I had to do a lot of experiment, a lot of experiments, but tracking was horrible. Um, I guess everyone was having the same the same problems, right? Uh, unless at the beginning of your career, if no one told you that there were other people were having the same problem. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, and another point I needed to, now I think um, another point of my career, I needed to put a model in production. And solution was quite artisanal. Uh, every time we need a new model, we just add the model in, the, in some cloud bucket and update the path and, you know, if you update the path in some in some table in SQL, uh, well, it's you know it's it's true. No, it's not tricky, but you know uh, you have to do it in pre-production, then in production, and then in the client. You know, it's it's not the the simplest way. Mm -hmm. Now we have a solutions for all. I think for all these problems, uh, what I'm using is MLflow. Uh, this is used for experiments tracking, but also for model serving. So you are actually uh, putting some server where you can send all the experiments results, the metrics, the parameters to, and you can also send the, the model itself. 
in, in case you want to serve the model, you know, to create an endpoint that could uh, serve uh, predictions. Mm -hmm. There are other other um, solutions, for, namely Kubeflow, uh, which is Kubeflow. Actually, I think is uh, Kubernetes plus Airflow or something like that. But you have um, from Kubernetes this um, approximation in pods uh, and container containerization. Mm -hmm. And also from Airflow, I think it's Airflow, but well, some Airflow, <laughs> some flow must be there. But you have these pipelines and these DAGs where you can put a task in for pre-processing, another task for training, another task for model serving. So, you know, a lot of, there. I think there is a lot of um, rise in these kind of uh, tools mm -hmm. and it's developing quite fast. Uh, I think there is actually some overlap between them. Uh, because, you know, for model serving, you have model serving in Kubeflow and MLflow. I think in TFX, which is the solution for that comes from Google and TensorFlow, they are also doing the same. And um, cloud providers are developing their uh, this same thing in their own products. You know, you have this Vertex AI, SageMaker, Azure ML. And I think it's quite great because for us as a scientist, it's better, you know, at the first, at the beginning, we are all in the notebooks, you know, practicing. Uh, after that, we go to the scripts, and well, it's a, it's a thing you have to. It's good if you know architecture, but sometimes, you know, at the beginning, we don't want that. We don't actually want to learn that, mm -hmm. um, unless some of some of us. Um, well, now now with a cloud solution, it's gonna be it's going to be easier, I think. Mm. Um, yeah, if you have worked with Kubernetes, Airflow, and Jenkins, and I know that a lot of uh, people haven't done that uh, because Airflow is most mostly for that engineers and Jenkins is and Kubernetes is most for software developers. Mm -hmm. But if you have worked with those and you know how they work, uh, learning MLflow and Kubeflow will be quite easy for you. A lot of techniques are similar uh, for you know this inter continuous integration or continuous development. Mm -hmm. But some difference, you know, to be said, suitable for the data science workflow, which is, mm -hmm. I think is quite different. Also, the repository to have a repository where you can download the, download that uh, images, Docker image, and deploy into some container. That's so much in it's it's quite good, and we are we are on the process of that, you know, um, to monitor. We need to. For data scientists in production, the problems are that we need to monitor, we need to have some place where I can save all the models and yes. to make them to make them uh, useful to, to make predictions. And what happens if the mo to monitor what the model is doing or not, because perhaps the model is, is useless now and we are we are not aware of that. We need to monitor what's the, the quality of the of the predictions. It's mostly about that, um, and I think it's going to change, you know, a lot of things in some years. Because right now uh, we are, have a lot of demand of, or demand of data, engin data engineers and machine engineers, not so much of data scientists, because of these kind of things. I think data scientists will need to know how to use these these tools. Uh, it's going to be a must in some some time, if not now. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Now I was very looking forward to hear all those tools that you've been using as uh, 
you have you you have different uh, backgrounds and you work on different uh, uh, on on all the different parts. Um, uh, so okay, thanks a lot for sharing all of that. Uh, of course, I just want to say to the people who are listening to you, you can always uh, ask me more questions and maybe we could do another episode with you to like get more in depth or on different points that we've seen on MLOps and, and all those topics. So feel free to reach out on, on LinkedIn. Um, okay, uh, this interview, this podcast have come up to an end. I have three last questions, if you could answer them shortly. The first one is, do you have a message that you would like to share regarding AI or what you've learned um, or your vision, the future? Do you have any message? Yes, uh, mostly for the people that are coming to our field, you know, please learn Git and Docker and do yourself a favor and read the clean code book. Um, there's a lot of debate because a lot of people say that it's not good. But I think it's a good starting point for if you approach it with a critical mind to, to code better. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a big, makes a difference when you are working with other people and also with clients and so on. And prepare to be learning all your professional life because there is a lot of different problems, different algorithms. I don't know. Uh, you know, every year, you know, there's a new new information that you need to be aware. It's completely normal to feel overwhelmed and to have this kind of imposter syndrome. But I can promise you that uh, as time times go, time passed. Uh, you will be, you will be, you will feel better. Um, but it's, it's quite normal. Uh, just keep pushing and studying. Awesome. That's a great motivation message. I needed it. <laughs> um, all right. So um, how do you keep learning uh, and be curious? Uh, do, do you have like, a, so you shared a book, um, um, you shared the book, you shared uh, some tools. Uh, how do you keep learning? Do you have a tool um, or a book that helps you on your AI journey? Do you have Do you have something regarding that? Yeah. Um, at the beginning, I was when I was uh, studying. Um, I watched a lot of videos from Joshua Starmer in StatQuest. I think he's great. Um, yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, and now I just follow. You know. Great minds on Twitter, you know, this uh, Francois Cholet, Lecun, Jeremy Howard, these guys. Um, it's also fun because uh, Francois Cholet has a lot of beefs with other, other guys. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, also, I follow people on LinkedIn. I think the most important, perhaps, or that everyone should, should follow is Huyen for MLOps. And it's mostly that I think. Um, you need to have fun, you know, perhaps mm. do something that's not on, that that's out of your circle. Perhaps I know if you don't, you know nothing about uh, web scrapping, try to uh, use something right, about that, you know, the beautiful soup, scrappy, you know, from, from every now and then I think it's, it's a good, um, it's a good thing to, to do something that you are not, you don't feel comfortable. And to learn, you know, we, we are here just to learn how to make things, right? So <laughs> that's, for me, it's a really good advice. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Uh, just Chip Huyen, it's C-H-I-P space H-U-Y-E-N. If anyone was looking to follow someone uh, that talks a lot about uh, MLOps and follow this recommendation. 
Um, I will also um, write all those down in the newsletter, so I recommend you to check the newsletter on LinkedIn, Thomas Bustos. Um, we've come to an end. Uh, I want to thank you a lot for uh, your time first and all this knowledge that you, you take time to share. And uh, I really enjoy listening every step from the time series to the economics approach, the A-B tasting and like the new ways you've mentioned to the um, MLOps, uh, machine learning operations uh, uh, where we've uh, went uh, deeper. So I wanted to thank you. Do you have recommendation of two people that uh, would come on the podcast? Uh, yeah, I, um, I would like, you know, I had a partner, my partner, you know, I was studying with a peer, uh, Alejandro Baca. He's a really good data scientist. So he's been in research since we left the, the master. And, you know, he's, he's a kind of a great guy because he's obsessed with this. <laughs> uh, he enjoys a lot, I think. Everyone, every, every listener perhaps knows someone that enjoys a lot to be here and, you know, he's spending like weekends or he's talking every time about this. Uh, yeah, he's, he's that, that kind of guy. Um, and he's, he was working in the implementation in Spanish for BERT. So they were working a lot in, the, in his company. And well, also Lenny Azabal, uh, who is a candidate, uh, a PhD candidate um, in law. And she's working a lot of the wrongs on the European regulation on AI and how that affects innovation and well, how the, I think it's a global problem, right? Um, you know, every jurisdictional sector, it's like uh, more traditional and perhaps in Estonia it's not that way, but at least in Spain, I'm guessing also that in English, in, in English countries, they have the same problem. But yeah, um, I, I would like to love, I love to do to you hear this podcast. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot again for all the episode. I know it took a little bit longer than the time format I would like to, um, to maintain, but uh, I really uh, looked forward uh, hearing all your answers. So I don't really care about the time. And uh, if you're still <laughs> here, well, thanks for making it with us uh, until the end of the podcast. And uh, I'll see you on the next one. And um, have a good day, Gustavo. Thanks again. Congrats, you've made it to the end. I hope you had a great time and that you learned a few things. To learn more about AI, you can subscribe to my newsletter or check the blog. And to support the podcast, you can give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also share it with two friends, colleagues or family members that might be interested. I wish you to have a wonderful day. Bye.